This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the wrap-up edition of 2016 for Everything Compliance. As always, we are joined by the extraordinary, extraordinaire panelist of Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, editor and founder of Radical Compliance, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, and Jonathan Armstrong with Quarterly Compliance in London. So, gentlemen, welcome. We had a, a heck of a year, and un, unfortunately, it's still happening as we are recording this podcast, so we might throw in some of this week's uh, newsworthy events as well, but we've all wanted to, to focus on some different things. So, Jay, I wanted to ask you, what are your sort of three top uh, themes from uh, 2016? Thanks, Tom. Uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in to wrap up the year with us. Um, there are three different things that I wanted to uh, take a brief look at, and if uh, anybody on our esteemed panel uh, wants to jump in, uh, please do. Um, I kind of took the opportunity to go back and look at different things that uh, happened during the year and different things uh, I touched about in my blogs. And um, one of the first things I wanted to bring up was a very interesting piece that came out earlier in the year, and it really took a look at the difference between uh, policies and procedures, and it was just a very simple article by uh, Dirk Lovenbrock. And the key point, or my key takeaway from it, is that um, you know it really makes a difference what you call something, and uh, whether something is part of your code of conduct, uh, whether something is a procedure about how you go about doing something within your company or within your organization. Um, it makes a big difference to really uh, have a handle on that and to quote unquote, give it a name. So when we are consistently looking back at situations, um, we're casting a look in the rear view mirror about where there was a breakdown, what happened here in a situation, why did this go bad? And, um, you know, a lot of the times when you think that you have a code of conduct that is um, all-encompassing and that really uh, sets up the norms on how you're supposed to act within certain situations, um, we found time and again that that code of conduct only can do so much. And then there are other policies and procedures. And as uh, Tom quite often speaks about, there are internal controls. So there are... Um, uh, a myriad of different uh, solutions and things that an organization has to live up to. But in terms of really um, codifying and classifying what you do, um, I thought this piece that Derek wrote was very simple. It's not anything that's groundbreaking, but it is uh, important in terms of how you're gonna go about uh, you know, building your compliance program and, and not only building it and putting it together, but in terms of how you roll it out and what types of bright lines that you uh, 
you know, put out there for your employee base. So that was one thing that I looked at. Hey, Jay. Hey, Jay, this is Mike. I want to try to interrupt without a a rant, but um, there's something that you brought up that I think, I mean, I think this topic is really more important because uh, then uh, I think we all realize when we saw an enforcement action that was based upon a code of conduct or an internal, as an internal control and a violation of a code of conduct. So it gets at an important issue to me, which is now I'm getting questions from clients who are saying, should I put something in writing? And then I want it to guide our behavior, but then I'm worried that the government is going to turn around. And if we fail to meet this standard, they're going to say we violated our internal controls. And I've had this debate with one client, a CEO of a a public company who is concerned about that. So, you know, your point about it matters what we call something and how we operationalize it is really even more important, I think, than when we were doing this, let's say, eight, ten years ago and starting in this or whatever, however many years ago we were. So um, it raises a big point, and I, I, I think you're hitting on a really what could be a really important point for next year. And Jay, I really uh, uh, resonate with your point uh, that words matter. And uh, to pick up on what, where Mike uh, was going with uh, from the United Airlines enforcement action, that was the domestic corruption enforcement action where uh, the CEO violated the company's code of conduct, and that was held to be a violation of internal controls. And codes of conduct are written very differently than compliance policies and certainly compliance procedures. Uh, they may be aspirational. They, they may be other. They're certainly going to include a wider variety of topics than simply anti-corruption. Um, anti, uh, um, anti-monopoly, privacy, anti-harassment, you name it. And so the words you put in your codes And if I could even now ask you to think about how about the translations of those words? Is that going to put additional pressure on the translators um, when you have to take that information overseas now? Does that create a a second obligation or even another obligation because of the translation issue? I don't know if it creates a second obligation, but it just... um uh, creates the uh, need to actually, um, you know, test this within each different jurisdiction. So, um, you know, a lot of the time when I'm working with a client and if they have a code of conduct and they're doing it into 30 languages, um, you know, sometimes you reach a point where there is a word that, that does not exist in a certain language. So if you merely use the English word, but there is no, you know, local equivalent, you probably have failed in your duty to explain the code of conduct in their local language. So one of the things that, um, you know, is really painstaking in this process is once we've done an initial translation from English into 30 languages, we're not done. We're just getting started. And you know what you need to do then is send that code or send that policy out to the people in Paris and the people in Sao Paulo and the, the people in Tokyo. And, and they need to give a read on that. And then they need to come back with whether or not the intent of what you said in English uh, comes out in the uh, local language. So, you know, some people will, the check the box types will just do the translation and dump it out there. And, um, you know, what we recommend is you have, um, you know, native speakers of the target language. So somebody that's going to translate your code into Japanese, they are uh, a native speaker of Japanese, they're bilingual with English, they understand idiomatic uh, things, they understand how to explain the code or the policy in context. And then once you've done that, then you get comments back from the folks who are in country 
and then you integrate that. So that's something that you do once and then maybe you refresh it 18 months or 24 months later. And then there are other decisions that you have to make. You know, do you talk about zero tolerance for corruption or do you talk about that we as a company subscribe to the FCPA, the UK Bribery Act, the Brazilian Clean Company Act? And sometimes we found that um, you get more resonance and you get more buy-in when you talk about the Lex Loci, you talk about where, you know, if you're in Brazil, you, you probably get more, um, you know, more buy-in if you talk about the Clean Com Company Act. So, you know, those are the things there that are the things that you have to contemplate when you're dealing with, you know, taking English source material and uh, presenting it in a non-English language. Um, so if that's good, I, I will go on to um, the second point. And this is a, a blog of mine that uh, came out uh, er, in early November. And um, you know, one of the things that we all have an opportunity to do is to get together several times during the year at uh, many uh, teaching and learning sessions. Uh, there are lots of conferences that we see each other. This uh, podcast originated from us getting together at the most recent uh, Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, uh, Compliance and Ethics Institute. And, um, you know, one thing besides having an opportunity for us to uh, get together and compare notes, I think one of the great things about uh, having so many different learning opportunities available is that there are different size conferences and one size does not fit all. So um, I think, uh, you know, what, what might be good if to have everyone jump in here is to say if there were any a couple key moments that happened this year, uh, conference-wise or new colleagues that you met or new ideas that came up, uh, you know, upon the circuit, because, uh, you know, this podcast is, is probably number one with a bullet, but I'd be interested <laughs> to uh, hear anything uh, that you, you guys think. Well, uh, this is Mike here. Uh, and um, Jay, there were, I think there were two things. One, we have to acknowledge our own brethren uh, in Tom's uh, award this year, which I thought was well-deserved. Uh, and we won't go on and on about it because, uh, you know, we've already, uh, we've already, you know, spent a lot of time talking about Tom anyways. So, uh, I'll talk about it. Don't worry. I thought, yeah, don't worry. Right. But I actually thought the, uh, the human trafficking issue, uh, and the way it's come up this year, I think is, uh, something that we're going to see more of. Uh, and I thought it was great that, you know, sort of compliance has grown around anti-corruption. There's a long history of it with, obviously, anti-money laundering. But to see it uh, sort of mature and grow into other areas, uh, I thought was, uh, I mean, that was a real, I think it was a real tribute to the FCCE and the fact that it's, you know, it moves into new areas and it's not afraid to do that. So I thought that was terrific at this year's national conference. Um, I have two ideas about what's jumped out at me on the conference circuit. Uh, number one, I attended in September the Workiva user conference. Now, I'm a little bit hesitant to um, call out a single product uh, software company's user conference, but uh, Workiva makes internal control and audit software um, it is a very large conference of about 1,500 people this year, very good. But what really struck me is that as much as we on this podcast and many compliance officers think in terms of corporate ethics, anti-corruption, investigations, we should not forget the roots of modern corporate compliance actually do trace back to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and all of the nitty gritty of a control matrix and testing internal controls and documenting them. And um, it is still a very important part of what we all talk about here. And if that part doesn't work, uh, then what we're talking about here will not work. Uh, whether you're going to Workiva's conference or other software vendors or internal audit 
conferences generally, there's still a lot of important work that gets done there. And a lot of these niche conferences about the more arcane accounting end of it, really good stuff. And likewise, one group I want to give a shout to is the Chief Audit Executive Leadership Forum, uh, which was founded out here in Boston about a year or two ago. And um, I go to those events. They happen every other month here in Boston. I think they're starting other chapters. But it's really just a group of maybe anywhere from 30 to 70 or so local chief audit executives who sit down and they shoot the breeze about what's driving them nuts. Uh, sometimes it's ethics. Sometimes it's auditing efficiency. Um, when I get to my big three things, I'm going to mention uh, auditing corporate culture, which I attended a forum session not long ago about that subject. And they do some great work. So, um, you know, we should always give a nod to the audit side of ethics, audit, compliance, risk, governance, all these things that all have to work together. But that really, I was very pleased at both of those events that I went to this year. So uh, for me, this podcast is certainly uh, one of the top things that came out of it. Uh, winning the award at SCC, as uh, Adam Turtletop said in his introduction, what can I say about Tom Fox that he hadn't said about himself? Um, <laughs> but beyond those two, uh, a couple of uh, observations. The first was that at Compliance Week, the uh, event started and ended with the government talking about operationalization of compliance and moving to uh, compliance 2.0 and, and 3.0 and really driving compliance into the fabric of the business. Uh, that uh, reemphasized for me the message that uh, Mike Volkoff often says, which is you don't have to read the tea leaves because the government clearly signals where they are going in enforcement and their expectations and uh, the Compliance Week conference certainly uh, did that for me. And then at the SCCE conference was the breadth and scope uh, and maturity of the compliance profession from the people on this podcast who've, who've been in this field for, for multiple years to some, some very young newcomers and everyone in between. And the SCCE responding to that with uh, different tracks, different levels of sophistication, different levels of maturity. And uh, I would expect that we will continue to see that in the conference circuit going forward. But Jay, if I could digress a minute, because I wanted to ask Matt. Uh, Matt, you've been involved in uh, organizing large conferences um, in a prior life. And there are three or four or maybe five very large conferences annually. And I was wondering if in thinking through the one that uh, you uh, used to head up, was it simply uh, a geographic or timing issue? Was there a theme that you would try to have different from the SCCE or Ethosphere? How, if someone wanted to think through uh, what conferences they might want to attend, are there any general guidelines that you might suggest they even consider? Yeah, sure. I think... Um you know, you should be honest and ask, where are you on your career maturity curve? Um, and I agree with you, Tom, that there are some really great minds who are entering this field. But if you are fairly new to ethics and compliance, you probably want to go to some events that are probably larger, but also do have more, I'll call them nuts and bolts tracks. Um, SCCE is very good at that. Uh, so is the Institute of Internal Auditors, if you are coming up on the audit side. Um, so are some of these software user conferences. Clearly, each software user conference has leads you to the result that their product is best. But the discussions that they have about how the flow of your governance audit or compliance program should work, you know, that's going to be applicable even if you wind up using a different vendor. So I've always found I learned more practical nuts and bolts issues at these larger events that are, you know, geared more to people and how you get it done. Now, if you are further along in your compliance career and you're not worried about how to get it done, you're thinking more about what do I actually want to do? What am I worried about? Then you probably could go to a smaller event that, um, 
is a little bit more senior and more conceptual or philosophical in its discussions. Um, I agree that the discussion in human trafficking at SCCE this year, this was, it was great. It was you know, an issue that I think will only get bigger in the future. Um, you know, and you want to look for groups that are thinking through problems that have no immediate right answer. I suspect in 2017, you know, we're going to hear a lot more about what's the incoming Trump administration really going to do. And you know, a lot of its policies will affect corporate regulatory compliance in all sorts of ways that we have no idea what it will be. Um, you know, you might want to look at something like that if you're more of a senior level person who's going to be counseling the CEO or the board about what may or may not be coming. So those are some thoughts I have. So, Jay, you, uh, you had one more uh, topic that you wanted to raise, which, uh, I think really encapsulates the biggest event for all of us in 2016. Yeah, so th this was an article that we spoke about a um, couple weeks after the election. Uh, it was a New York Times op-ed uh, article, Why Corruption Matters by Paul Krugman. And, um, you know... One of the things that we were just kind of knocking about before we got on the air is that uh, yesterday came to light that uh, there was a, a bigger, uh, more in-depth article in the Wall Street Journal about Goldman Sachs' involvement with the 1MDB fund. And, uh, you know, actually one of the folks who, um, you know, was uh, in leadership at the time is now being asked to join the Trump administration, and that's Gary Kahn. Um, so again, uh, why corruption matters, we, we're, we're gonna now have um, a, a, a commander in chief who has to worry about things both from an economic level, from a global policy level, and um, you know, the majority of the folks who have been uh, nominated uh, to serve in his cabinet, it seems to me, and this is my own opinion, not the opinion of my company or anyone I work for, uh, that President-elect Trump, at every chance he's had, has picked probably the most uh, inappropriate person to put up for these positions. And I'm just wondering, with three members from Goldman Sachs being nominated to serve at the president's pleasure, uh, whether or not they'll even make it through the confirmation uh, hearings based on the latest uh, news that has come out. And um, we have to understand that uh, policy and um, economics and uh, our standing in the world and terrorism this is all linked together. And when the president uh, tweets out that he's speaking to uh, a foreign power that we do not uh, normally recognize as a world power, uh, these tweets, these, uh, what are they, 140 characters, uh, definitely have a large impact on the world. And uh, if the link is not made between corruption and, uh, you know, global policy, we are going to be in for a very tough four years. So um, I don't know if I, uh, I was a little bit rambling there, but uh, this is the key point, I think, that we're going to really see how corruption is the bedrock of a lot of these policy decisions going forward. And it will be extremely interesting to see how the president-elect uh, uh, populates his cabinet and whether or not there is going to be any uh, vigorous discourse uh, in the approval process or whether these guys are going to get uh, rubber stamped. So um, I throw that uh, lit bomb out to the group to see what you guys think about that. Well, Mike Volkoff is our resident Republican. Are these guys going to get through the process? Um, I think they all will. Um, I think that uh, a lot of them will be damaged through the process. Uh, I do think that, uh, I mean, Jerry raises a lot of important issues, and I think that we will have some of them, uh, you know, taking office, but with a lot of sort of uh, 
damage. I do think, though, that um, there's going to be, you know, some irony in a lot of what's going on in this administration, to, to put it mildly. But from a narrower standpoint, and this gets to one of my issues, uh, in terms of the sort of global battle on anti-corruption, I don't see much change except for we may be, um, you know, not speaking from such pure lips uh, as a country. But I do think that there is so much in place and so many parts that have been built through the years uh, with, under the FCPA and in the international framework that we're going to see uh, I hate to say it, the more things change, the more things stay the same uh, type of theme that goes on with uh, our sort of um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, FCPA enforcement area and our sort of global commitment to supporting other countries. I think that's going to continue. Uh, and I don't see much change in that. On the other hand, I do think that uh, I, I thought it was interesting that yesterday the administration or one of the spokespeople, Mr. Gingrich, said that uh, Mr. Trump is not no longer going to use the phrase drain the swamp. Um, and I think uh, that's an example of what I'm saying in terms of uh, our lips may not be so clean, but uh, I do think the machinery is in place to sort of continue. Uh, in terms of that fight, but it's going to be interesting to see the sort of contrasts. But Jay, as always, raises a, an important point. Well, Matt, from the uh, purity of Cambridge, what do you see? You know, I, I would kind of pick up on something that Mike just said, that, uh, you know, the mechanisms are there, but, you know, the purity of what we're saying may be different. Um, no, number one, I do think just about all of Donald Trump's cabinet appointees will get approved. I think that a fair number of them will come out um, damaged. I'm not quite sure what that damage will look like, but I, I don't foresee that anybody's going to get voted down. But um, I think that we are going to see an interesting dynamic where I don't believe much of the Trump administration will be corrupt. But I do believe that Donald Trump himself will be corrupt, um, as in he will make pronouncements to squeeze various interests to do favors for him. Um, I would already mention specifically uh, when he talked about Boeing overcharging for Air Force One, by, and he did so by tweet. By tweet, number one, he made up the $4 billion number. Uh, that wasn't accurate. Number two, he did this two days after the CEO of Boeing publicly aired some concerns about launching a trade war with China. And then number three, after all of this, after Boeing stock price wobbled a bit for a day and he talked with the CEO of Boeing, Boeing then makes a donation to the Trump inauguration committee. I am not saying that this was some sort of shakedown or payoff. I am saying plenty of people will look at that sequence of events and question the nature and the motivations behind them. And this is only one small taste of what this man is going to do. But yeah, you know, Mike is absolutely correct. You know, are we going to see um, a Justice Department under Jeff Sessions suddenly say, you know, we don't care about anti-corruption anymore. Forget about FCPA risk. No, that's not going to happen at all. You know, we are still going to see vigorous prosecution of actual crimes. How is that going to work in penalties or forgiveness or cooperation? We can speculate, but you know, the Justice Department is not going to be corrupt. It's more that these instances of Donald Trump, an unprepared and unqualified man, shooting his mouth off, that's the sort of thing where, like, how's this really going to work? Um, I think he is not going to be a very good president because I just don't think he's got his act together as a leader. I don't think he is a good leader. If you look at his track record, he never has been. So why would he start now? Um, but I'll get off my soapbox. That's all I have to say about Trump. I promise. <laughs> so let me see if I can take it a little bit different direction, because I've been thinking about this question in preparation for our podcast today. And when Jay shared uh, sort of his concerns um, and what he wanted to talk about on this point, uh, I see a actual business response to the issue of corruption. And because we've had 
so much robust enforcement, which has led to the modern compliance profession. We've had uh, laws, obviously, uh, FCPA, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank. Um, and now we have a maturity in the compliance profession. And we've seen that businesses uh, believe now that they are more efficient better run and more profitable if not only they do not engage in bribery and corruption, but the people they do business with do not, both on the sales side, the supply chain side, and perhaps even on the customer side, so that the business response will continue to require uh, anti-corruption language in all contracts, thorough vetting of partners, <clears throat> dropping of partners who might violate the law or engage in other illegal activities so that we may see businesses lead this, if not discussion, lead this effort now, even if we have someone at the top who does shake down Boeing for a contribution or does demand that you stay in the Trump Hotel when you come to Washington and cancel your reservation at the Four Seasons, or even if someone who says, if you make a $500,000 donation to my charity, you'll get a 30-minute audience with um, the president-elect. So... Um, because of the maturity of the compliance profession and compliance programs, I'm really thinking that businesses see it's to their advantage to do business with people that do not pay bribes. And Jay, if I could tie it back to your initial point, that's what I got out of Paul Krugman's column, Why Corruption Matters, uh, because the incentives that require are used or uh, the byproduct of corruption. If the business case is not there, businesses will respond uh, by being more compliant. So um, I wanted to, to leave that out there as a potential uh, uplift for everyone. And um, I think that uh, all I can say is, Thanks to Maurice Gilbert, we'll be revisiting this at the end of uh, the first quarter of 2017. Now I'm going to turn to Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan is our colleague from Quarterly Compliance in London. And Jonathan, there were some, all, as always, interesting developments out of the UK and the EU, but there were three I really wanted to uh, ask you to, to focus on because I think they will have continuing implications in uh, data privacy and in the anti-corruption world, in the compliance component of the anti-corruption world, and in the legal enforcement and legal compliance part of the greater cor corruption world. Um, so with that, um, maybe we could start with a, a really interesting case that came out of Scotland, and it's um, a company called Braid Group Limited, and I'm just going to call it Braid, but uh, could you just uh, uh, talk to us about that? And, and please keep in mind that uh, as Americans, we may not understand the subtle distinctions between the English and Scottish legal systems. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, well, basically, as an overgeneralization, the uh, England and Wales is based, as you know, exclusively on common law, so very similar rules to the US, for example. Scotland is on a different system for prosecutions, but in some respects, it doesn't matter too much in this particular Braid case. The, the difference really is who the prosecutor is, essentially. So here, it's the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal that bring proceedings initially in April 2016 against uh, Braid Group Holdings Limited, which is the holding company for various subsidiaries in freight and logistics. And it was one of the first prosecutions under Section 7 of the Bribery Act, this failure to prevent bribery provision. Now, the initial case itself, let's just call this the criminal case uh, for ease, was uh, interesting in a number of respects. It's basically a hospitality case. And there was all this debate prior to the Bribery Act coming in as to whether prosecution of hospitality cases was going to be one of the real differences between the Bribery Act and the, and the FCPA, which I know, with some exceptions, tends not to feature pure hospitality cases. So here, the case was an account effectively for unauthorized expenses, things like personal travel, holiday gifts, hotels, car hire, and cash. And it was paid for, 
so, so, so um, purchasers got a kickback through dishonestly inflated invoices. And that was effectively the criminal case that Raid, uh, the company, settled. Now, that's unique enough, I think. I think this was somewhat revolutionary. But the thing that I think is much more interesting yet is that the case came back into court on the 23rd of August, but this time in a civil action. And this was an appeal against a court order against a former director of Braid, a guy called Nigel Gray. Now, Braid had been going for more than 50 years when the case came to court. Gray had got together and put an MBO together with a few other guys when the founder of Braid... Could I, could I stop you uh, there and ask what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is MBO? Oh, a management buyout. Okay. So, yeah. so they... <laughs> thank you for the translation opportunity, Tom. Uh, they get together as a management team. They decide to buy out the family that's effectively founded the business. And Gray's one of that team. And the court heard the Gray knew of this uh, unauthorized expense system. He called it a profit share scheme. He said he sort of believed uh, that that was what it was, that individuals at the purchasing organization, their customers, got a kickback, but he said it was a profit share, not a kickback. Anyhow, the court decided that Braid had properly investigated his conduct. And he's the real kicker, I think. The rest of the investors in the business asked that the value of Gray's shares be written down because he should have supervised the, the company more properly. And they seem to be arguing that if he had got in there and investigated the scheme properly and found that it was bribery, not profit share, he could have stopped it and the company may not have been prosecuted. And, um, and, and these, they, they sought to recover through a civil action consequent on the, on the criminal investigation. Um, they, uh, the court said um, that Gray had failed in his duties as the company and as a re uh, to the company, and as a result, the other shareholders would be allowed to buy Gray's shares at less than the current market value. So the current ma market value was about 20, 000, uh, uh, sorry, 20 million sterling, and the court decided that those shares could be bought for about two and a half million sterling. So a loss of 18 million sterling for Gray. And this case was a, a, an appeal against the original order. And the, the appeal court decided that it could stand. And one of the judges, Lord Malcolm, said, there was no question but that conduct of the kind undertaken by Mr. Gray could be predicted to be, and in fact has been, highly damaging, both financially and to the reputation of the business. And this seems to me to be really interesting. We're almost saying that executives of the business, where they have shareholdings, can be punished for the company's bribery uh, in their own pocket. And because this uh, Section 7 offense is an offense of failing to prevent rather than actually being you know, active necessarily in the bribery, it seems to me that a lot of management of organizations are potentially vulnerable for a similar action. So I guess the nearest equivalent in the US would be class action lawsuits that follow uh, criminal findings. But I think it's an interesting mechanism uh, how the you know, the second court, the civil court, really, got to punishing Gray for his conduct. And I think it has a number of interesting points. Firstly, I think that this Section 7 obligation, this obligation of failure to prevent bribery, seems to me that if you extrapolate this case, it applies not only to companies, but also to the individuals as well. So if they don't stamp out corruption, there may be personal consequences for them. And whilst those personal consequences might not be criminal, 
they might hit them in the in the pocket. So as a result, obviously, in, executives have to investigate uh, bribery promptly and invest in procedures, policies, training, all of the good things that are listed in the accompanying guidance to the Bribery Act to try and stamp bribery out. So from my point of view, I think it's... Um, I think it's an interesting case and, and, and the way in which the court reached its decision in the civil case seems to be, to be quite interesting as well. So you noted the uh, underlying fine to Braid Group Holdings Limited was 2.2 million um, pounds sterling, yet the valuation cost to um, Mr. Gray was 18 million approximately. Yeah. Any idea exactly. where the basis of the uh, reduction in share value came from? To, to be honest, I've 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 not um, I, I've not looked at the precise calculation. It seems to me that there's certainly an element of it is the cost of the investigation, and an element of it I think is almost the the tarnishment on the on the share value. But it does seem to me to be quite a leap, as you say, the the actual settlement. And re- I guess, re- remember, it is a sort of, it's it's similar to a DPA, though it's not exactly the same. And, it, and again, this is a difference, the Scottish system versus that in England and Wales. But, but there is a leap between the amount that the company pays the prosecutors versus the loss that Gray suffers. And then um, the other thing, uh, kind of moving down the lawyer's slippery slope, is that would there have been any kind of sanction against Mr. Gray personally uh, in terms of a monetary penalty, even a civil side monetary penalty, if there had not been this finite point where the shares were going to be converted into cash, meaning a sale? So... If there had been no MBO, management buyout, if there had been no offer uh, to purchase outstanding shares, um, would there have been uh, any cause or cause of action or underlying mechanism by which he could be financially punished in any way? Yeah, I think the MBO, the uh, the transaction, that was the transaction which effectively jumped up Gray shareholding. So that was his entering transaction, if you like, not his exit transaction. Um, my suspicion is that um, it, it's not a happy time for Gray and the rest of the shareholders. So I think we can safely assume that there is going to be some sort of exit. And it might well be that they negotiate a value that's that's between the, you know, the two and a half million and the 20 and a half million. Um, but I think it seems to me that this, as a, as a principle, the share value could, I guess, be written down absent any transaction, and you could theoretically have the court make other orders as well. For example, we've seen in some of the French cases, for example, of corporate wrongdoing, I can think of one off the top of my head. The executives agree to forsake bonuses, share options, etc., for the period in which the company had suffered a detriment. And whilst that's a voluntary concession, you could see that theoretically a court could order that. They could say, you know, you're not entitled to bonus because the bonus was obtained because of inflated profits of the company. The profits were inflated because an illegal scheme was being run, and, and, and as a result, you've you know revoked your opportunity to get the bonus. And, and I think the you know you could have a really interesting academic debate if you were more academic than I am about shifting burdens of proof here, because obviously, even though it's a Section Seven offence, which looks like it's a reversed burden of proof, i.e. the company has to prove that it did take reasonable steps to prevent bribery, if you're following me. The, um, yeah, we'd call that an still affirmative have, defense. Yeah, it still has to be proved to the, to the criminal standard, right. which is slightly weird because it's sort of a reversed burden. 
but of course there's a civil standard so in uh, so in England and Wales it would be uh, it, it would be beyond all reasonable doubt for the criminal prosecution and a balance of probabilities for civil so insofar as you're all you know you're trying to put that in percentage terms 99% on the criminal standard and 51% on the civil. So you could get cases, I suspect, where the company isn't prosecuted because the criminal standard can't be met to prove that the company did something wrong. But the executive could be subject to civil proceedings because he failed to to supervise the company adequately. So I, I I think this case will get more prominence than it has so far. The, um, I absolutely agree. The fa- underlying facts would suggest, or at least the reported facts would suggest, that a large part of the illegal activity was uh, not, um, was uh, engaged in by third parties. And that seemed to be something the court focused in on the failure to prevent uh prevent the company's uh, associated third parties or persons associated with it for paying, paying, paying bribes on the company's benefit. Really, is this something uh, that uh, you could see either the Scottish authorities or even the S- Serious Fraud Office utilizing as a basis uh, for prosecutions uh, into 2017 in the future, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think in my view, it's probably relevant that it was frighteningly Logistics, you know, an industry where we've had some big cases recently on, you know, on both sides of the pond and which is, you know, known to be prone to issues. So I think that uh, makes a difference. But I do think that we're going to see um, renewed confidence in prosecutors because, um, you know, there are clearer messages now the companies have to go out and supervise and, and take cognizance of their Section 7 responsibilities. Well, I think we're going to have to watch this one. Um, the Certainly the initial sanction against um, Braid was was reported uh, in the United States, but I will have to say this, this follow-on action against Mr. Gray, I do re- vaguely recall it, but it uh, has really not been explored uh at the link that I think uh, it is uh, worthy of. So uh, thank you very much for bringing that up. No, my pleasure. So now um, I'd like to turn to the second deferred prosecution agreement. And it's, uh, I thought the title was just absolutely perfect uh, because uh, it was called the XYZ deferred prosecution agreement. And it's absolutely perfect because there's a well-known U.S. US historical event called the XYZ affair between the U.S. and France, where uh, the French Foreign Minister Talleyrand uh, was trying to force American commissioners to pay bribes uh, to end a quasi-war. They refused to do so, and so the war continued. And it's a big, uh, if you're a fan of American history, uh, you hear about the XYZ affair. And when you apply it to a uh, corporate corruption matter, um, it certainly would uh, would uh, get a historian or a lawyer who is a historian's attention. But with that, Jonathan, could you maybe walk us through the facts? Because once again, I thought these uh, were very unique and, and more importantly, really portend the direction the uh, SFO might be going. Yeah, I think this is an interesting case. And I was at a, a thing with David Green, the director of the SFO, on Friday where he talked a little bit about the case as well. And I think in some respects, there is a, a few similarities with the Braid case. First of all, it's a, another Section 7 case of failure to prevent. And secondly, there's an element of um, making sure that people who have profited further down the line also do their bit uh, to remedy the uh, issues as well. Now, I have to say it's a case, we call it XYZ here, of course, but it's a case that we can't say too much about. And the reason why we're not allowed to know the name of the companies involved uh, is that the SFO are reserving the right to prosecute the individuals. 
So there is a limit to the amount of information that we've been told. And you might remember that we have um, an odd process of DPAs here, but, um, but one that I think, uh, I know some, I think Mike Volkov said on one of our podcasts he, he, he likes, where basically the defense and the prosecution agree in principle to a DPA. They then get a judge and they have a private hearing when they explain the DPA to the judge and he can ask for more details or he can eventually approve the DPA. And once the judge approves the DPA, then the court has to resume in an open hearing and, and in the open hearing, facts relating to the case are read out or handed down and the judge approves the DPA. Now, in this case, because of the ongoing prosecutions, we've got, a, you know, insofar as we've only had two DPAs, really. So insofar as we've got a precedent, I think we've got less data about this DPA than the first. And we've got some redacted details given to us again because of this uh, willingness from the SFO to, to explore prosecutions against the individuals. But here, um, it relates to uh, actions undertaken by the UK subsidiary of a US corporation. And the subsidiary and the parent are going to contribute towards the DPA. They're going to pay some uh, six and a half million pounds. The costs are going to be swallowed by the SFO. And David Green was saying on Friday that part of the reason for that is they thought it was not in the interest of justice for this episode to be fatal for the company. So obviously the company employed people. It's had, you know, maybe a moment of madness, maybe several moments of madness, but uh, it shouldn't collapse as a result. And so the DPA effectively involves the company's U.S. parent who have agreed to pay roughly a third of the settlement because that's meant to be a significant proportion of the dividends that went across the channel to the U.S. parent during the time that the bribery went on. And so the idea is, I guess, a little bit like with Gray and the Braid case, to make sure that the individual concerned hasn't, hasn't prospered through profiting on the bribery. Um, and then, as you'd expect, in addition to the financial penalty, as part of the DPA, the company's also under an obligation to cooperate with the SFO to provide a report addressing third-party intermediary transactions, its own policies, um, et cetera, similar to a U.S. monitorship, and also to cooperate in bringing the individuals responsible to judgment. And um, the, uh, the judge who heard this case, by the way, it's the same judge in both cases, Sir Brian Levison, who's the president of the Queen's Bench Division, a very senior judge, uh, says that um, that it was in the interest of justice to bring this DPA in part because of the impecunious nature of the UK subsidiary and in part to recognise the attention paid to corporate compliance prior to and at the time of subsequent to the offending. So this is basically uh, a good company with bad eggs rather than a bad company who had a systematic scheme of, uh, of bribery and corruption, it seems at least from the limited details we have. So the um, deferred prosecution agreement, uh, I thought, uh, was very interesting. The open question of who the company is, who the American parent is, however, leads uh, really leads into the, the next exploration. I, I would like to take this because this, Jonathan, seems to me to be a very good example of the globalization or potential globalization of anti-corruption enforcement. 
Uh, we have a UK mm-hmm. subsidiary with a, a U.S. parent. Um, I would have to assume the U.S. parent has uh, disclosed or is in a um, FCPA investigation. And if they're a public company, they would have disclosed that information. I recently uh, saw uh, a panel with Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn, and they talked about this globalization of enforcement. And one of the key points they raised was what they called the pie of finite fines and penalties to be paid and how it would be equitably divvied up by enforcement jurisdictions who were involved in the uh, in the investigation and enforcement. One of the key elements was whether or not all uh, jurisdictions had been notified about uh, self-disclosed by the corporation. So um, it's going to be, I think, interesting to see going forward where this case goes and how it fits into this greater globalization where we're going to have multiple jurisdictions um, investigating and enforcing uh, local laws uh, around the same conduct by a company. So we could very easily have Mm -hmm. a U.S. enforcement action, a U.K. enforcement action, uh, a Brazilian enforcement action, a French enforcement action, you name the country enforcement action. And this type of cooperation, uh, I think – uh, I, I would hope, but I would also think that we're going to see more of it going forward. And so I would really point to this case as much as I was interested in the the nature of the DPA and the comments by the judge in the interest of justice section, I'm beginning to believe that it may become even more important on the globalization of anti-corruption enforcement to see how the U.S. regulators uh, work with the serious fraud office, both in terms of the uh, corporate resolution, but also a resolution against individuals, if any. Yeah, I, I think that's a. I think that is an interesting development. And of course, prior to DPAs being legit, if you like, in the UK, we had uh, something of a false start with the Innospec prosecution, I believe, where the judge said that effectively the divvy up between of the pie in your case, the divvy of the pie between the US and the UK authorities, he didn't think was equitable. And they only just got the DPA, though not called a DPA, through the judge uh, by the by the skin of their teeth, I think. So that's why I think we have more checks and balances in the uh, official DPA system. And I think it'll be interesting to see the first one that's hot with multiple regulators in multiple jurisdictions and see how that dividend works and and how they get a judge to agree that the split's equitable. Um, David Green also talked about this sort of thing on Friday as well. Uh, He was talking about uh, the SFO understanding that companies would want to do a global settlement that's that's final and, uh, and once and for all. He said the SFO wouldn't give a guarantee about this, but they would listen to proposals. And his exact words were, we'll listen to proposals to use our good officers to make that happen. He specifically said that they have close cooperations at the moment with the US, with Hong Kong and with Singapore. And he talked about LIBOR, the LIBOR investigation as an example, where the SFO took the lead on Barclays for the UK but the U.S. led on rubber bank in the U.S. He also talked a little bit about the UBS prosecution, where for various legal reasons, the individual who the SFO said was the ringleader was prosecuted in the U.K., but the corporation was prosecuted in the U.S. So I think we might find these many more joint investigations going forward and also some thoughts by regulators as to how they might, you know, if you like, share the spoils or share the, the, um, the pie. You know, if, if, we, if we believe the works of uh, the eminent historian Johnny Depp in, in pirate days, uh, people used to meet up and share the spoils and share the bounty between them and so on. And, and you know, you, you have visions of prosecutors meeting up similarly with three chests of gold and working out who's going to get which, don't you? 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.